G'day guys, my name's Dan Wallace and on this episode of the Run and Stripe podcast, I've got an interview with a renowned physiotherapist and host of the physical performance show, Brad Bear. Brad's been treating athletes for over 15 years now and in that time has worked with some of the biggest names in distance running. Given Brad's expertise, we're able to talk through some insights into areas like the biomechanical impacts caused by carbon-plated shoes, key areas of strength that are often overlooked and underappreciated by runners, and early signs and symptoms of common running injuries. If you enjoy this chat with Brad, would love it if you could subscribe and give us a five-star review to help increase the reach of the podcast. Also, if you have anything specific you'd like to ask Brad, we'll be doing a follow-up Q&A with your questions that you can write in the comment section on our social media posts for this episode. So without further delay, here's our chat with Brad. And one thing I've never asked you even during our appointments is how did that start? How does a physio start a podcast? Are we recording this? Yeah, why not? Um, we'll just make it like one of our calls. Somewhat, somewhat damn by accident. Uh, in that we were having, uh, as a physiotherapist, you conduct interviews every day with every patient. You are interviewing people to find out about things, uh, essentially. So it was just an extension of that, Dan. I thought at the time we were some ways semi-early adopters to the to the space and just sort of be good fun uh, to put out some conversations that would typically happen in consult rooms to the wider audience, knowing that many of the learnings and the challenges of, of, of patients, athletes, would, would help other athletes and patients and people in the space and started with just the athletes and from now from there it's uh, grown down into a um, combination of what we call expert editions and uh, feature performers coaches corners uh, catch episodes more recently so it's it's grown in, in different types and we found that the thing that people tend to enjoy about the physical performance show Dan is the uh, is the the ability to take something away that's practical that they can hopefully implement in the pursuit of their own best performance. I mean, well, I certainly have. And the other question I had to that is, do you think it's, um, has it changed your business? I mean, surely you've had consults that have been referred not from patients, but from the podcast. Surely someone's listened to that and then got in touch with you. Yeah, that has definitely happened, Dan, uh, internationally and domestically. Uh, I did the Grafton Inverell Cycle Classic in May 2021. It's a 228k bike race that I've always wanted to do, and it was funny. We were rolling out of town in Grafton. Uh, the flag had dist- was about to drop. We are about to start racing, and uh, the gentleman said to me uh, in the pack, in the peloton, I know that voice. <laughs> and I was like who me he's like yeah that's the physical performance show so i just thought that was hilarious here we are in a pack of maybe 80 or 90 cyclists and someone picked up the voice uh and then yeah i mean there's endurance athletes triathletes runners that i have the great pleasure of working with now dan that are abroad in in countries france uk south africa uh who have reached out who have become somewhat familiar with the podcast and and I guess uh, myself in some ways as a therapist. So, yeah, it's it's had that flow-on effect as well. Well, the other thing I wanted to talk about is um, as runners, because 
at, at the end of the day, I know you're a runner at heart. So even if you do triathletes and cyclists, <laughs> I know you're a runner. But you've got so many different types of guests and I'm always trying to pick things that from other sports that could help me as a runner and runners in general. And I'll do an obvious one, Kim Keedle. I'm sitting here and, I mean, the listeners can't see it, but I'm in full Formula One kit, not a helmet. But um, so guys like that, what have you learned from them and what can what can runners learn from other sports that are completely unrelated? I've definitely learned from every guest we've ever had on, as I have from every patient I've ever seen, Dan, in almost 15 years of clinical practice, you know, tens of thousands of patients now and always learning. That's me personally. But from the uh, from the listeners of the show tuning in, there certainly has been a streamlining of guests to be as consistent as we can with the endurance sporting world. So running, trail running, triathlon, uh, et cetera. Uh, every now and then, though, there's a guest like you just mentioned, Kim Keedle, physiotherapist in the F1 racing space. And as you just mentioned, you're a huge fan of F1 racing who is just interesting because they've got some unique takes on best practices for high performance. So so we like to still tap in where we can to interesting guests like that because I think sometimes not getting too insular and uh, too much in our little silos of how we see things and do things can be healthy because we can just pick something up that we can bring into the endurance sporting world. So, yeah, Kim's a great example and a, and a great guy too, doing great things in F1. I think the professionalism that guys like that would be so used to um, is probably something runners can really key off of. Um, and I mean, with that in mind, with some of the pros that you've worked with, uh, what sets some of them apart? I mean, it, all it takes is a cursory glance over the episodes. I mean, Legart stands out for me. Um, Robertson's, the guys in Australia as well, are they what separates them from a normal patient? Are they hyper-focused? Are they, do you ever have to worry about them doing the rehab that, um, that you prescribe them? It's a very good question. And there are some overlaps of characteristics, I think, with high performers. You mentioned Zane Robertson, New Zealand Oceanic Marathon record holder, Bernard Legat, five times US Olympian, second fastest 1,500 metre of miler. Sorry, I think miler or 1,500 metres ever still. Second, uh, yeah, second, mile. Yeah, mile. Uh, so you're right. I mean, it's, it's been amazing and a real privilege to have exposure to athletes like this at times, like that at times. I think one thing that does stand out, Dan, is they're very intentional. Uh, they're intentional about what they do. They have a plan. They've reverse engineered their season based on major competitions where they want to be at their best. And they're also aware that the big rocks matter most. And the little things still add up. But I think there's, there's sometimes an observation between recreational athletes and professionals. Professionals in some ways, I think, are more relaxed about some of the smaller rocks, if you use the big rock, small rock analogy. Uh, and sometimes the age group athletes can be a bit too focused on those little things. So an example would be worrying about the shoe choice, uh, for example, for a recreational runner that maybe hasn't dialed in their training plan for the, for a marathon or a half marathon. So there's an inquisitiveness, sorry, there's an intentionality, there's a relaxed manner about them, uh, but they're also very professional, of course. 
But then the other big thing that I've observed, Dan, would be they're very inquisitive. They're, they're lifelong learners. They ask questions about why things are being done. They challenge thinking. They have their own takes on things, take on things. So they tend to be really switched on learners as well who don't just take things at face value, which I think is healthy. There's a couple of things I picked up there. Well, first of all, I bungled it. It was um, I knew straight away after I said it. Lagarde's second fastest in the fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred, so, yeah, yeah, um, three twenty six point something. But it sounds like what you're saying is that they have a more proportional response <coughs> to the gains that can be made. So they're not putting a hundred percent effort into something that might be a point one percent gain. Um, yeah. The other question I have from that is. You, you, you briefly mentioned shoes. With the onset of carbon plates um, and, and, and racing shoes, have you started to see um, a change in the injuries that are being presented or niggles to you since, say, I mean, well, I first raced in about 2016, but uh, say since about 2018, are people presenting differently? Anything that I say is anecdotal because there is some emerging literature in the science. There is some observation that runners running with carbon plates and the associated foams may be experiencing more proximal-based injuries. So these are things around their hips and pelvis, so femoral shaft bone stress injuries, pubic bone stress injuries, adductor tendinopathy, etc. So that's something that the world of sports medicine is noticing, but too early to really concretely call it. Uh, the other thing that carbon-plated shoes do is there's this interaction between the, the, the foot, the shoe, and the ground. Uh, it's a quite a complex interaction. Uh, it's always been modulated based on the surface that the runner is landing on uh, for this concept of lower limb stiffness, so leg stiffness. So if we run on a soft surface the body will make our lower limb so like grass stiffer uh you'll stiffen up at the knee you'll stiffen up at the ankle typically if we run on a hard surface our brain our makes our leg less stiff so more compliant so when you then chuck in or so i should say pop on some carbon shoes it changes that whole stiffness dynamic and that'll do different things to different runners depending on the surface and also depending on the foot strike so you can see it's a, it's a very big topic. But one of the things that I have observed is with that carbon plate, there's less ability for the big toe to do work. So when you take away that work demand at the big toe, that can shift it up uh, to increase in power generation at the ankle. So people that are susceptible to ankle injuries, be it anterior impingement for example and i use the word impingement carefully but that's a pathological condition where someone's symptomatic at the front of their ankle may experience uh some symptoms um so that's so that's a, that's another i guess observation dan but it's it's a big space and one that we really need to have a few more years of observation and data around to make confident trends to um sorry to outline confident trends with it so the forces like you said, they have to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So they shift from the big toe to the ankle. And um, up the chain. And up the chain. So is there 
I think that I think it's pretty safe to say that a lot of runners are feeling that. Mm. Um, is there anything you would suggest? I mean, can it ever hurt working on big toe FHL stuff? Surely, as a runner, that's always going to be pretty beneficial. Yeah, the big toe is a bit of a forgotten part of the runner's anatomy or kinetic chain. It's the the last thing to leave the ground. It's the last point of propulsion. So a couple of considerations at the big toe, Dan, you just touched on one is the ability for it to push into the ground and produce both vertical and horizontal force. So you mentioned a muscle there, the flexor hallucis longus, which is the big toe flexor. Uh, it's key that that's strong. So doing things like a, a big toe hold down, like you're a wrestler, imagine you're holding the big toe under the ground, imagine you've got someone under your big toe. Uh, they can be really helpful. This is big in things like calf strains. Um, so really there's not a runner around that wouldn't benefit from working on their big toe strength and also keeping an eye on their big toe range of motion, particularly that extension. So pulling up of the big toe, it's good to look for symmetry from the left to the right to see if they're, they are even. If there's one that's a little bit stiffer, that's something that clinically may be of significance if there's a lower limb injury, a running related injury on that stiffer big toe side. So they're the two things to keep an eye out for with the big toe. You mentioned it's one of the forgotten areas. Um, I think as runners, we get kind of caught up in a few things. Um, glutes, for example, everyone's talking about firing their glutes. What, what are some of the other forgotten areas that you've seen patients either come in with or go out of the of their consult room working on and then getting really benefit from? Great question, Dan. I'd, I'd say I'll, I'll keep it simple just because it's portable and hopefully sticky for people to remember. Fueling and the soleus. So maybe we touch on fueling quickly first. Uh, as we both know and as the listenership would know, Dan, bone stress injuries present a very real and very present danger to any endurance runner. It's very rare that any endurance runner will get through their career, professional, recreational, or otherwise without a bone stress injury. Some runners like myself can have a sequelae of bone stress injuries. Unfortunately, I've had circa six or seven femoral shaft bone stress injuries since 2014. The problem with them is you have to stop, you have to deload, and then you have to reload. So it's a lot more than the six or four or eight weeks or whatever it may be of deloading off. It's that whole build back phase. And one of the big things that Dan's getting a lot more acknowledgement and appreciation and awareness in the endurance sports community is this concept of low energy availability. So it is what it sounds like. It's not enough energy on board to promote optimal performance and to also promote optimal bone health. Uh, for example, the literature tells us that a, an endurance athlete needs 45 kilocalories per kilo of body weight to maintain bone health. So if you know a fat-free mass for an athlete, the fat-free mass of an athlete, you can multiply that by 45 kilocalories. And there's the daily energy consumption needed just to maintain homeostasis. We're not even talking about adding training on top yet. And if we if there's greater than 12 hours of training a week, which is not uncommon in the endurance sports world, recreational, recreationally competitive or professional, of course, uh, greater than 12 hours of training, some energy deficiency, uh, not enough fuel on board, uh, then 
that combined with a few other factors can increase the risk of a bone stress injury by 15 fold. So fueling would be a big one, Dan. The other is let's not forget the soleus. As you said, we get fixated on the hips and pelvis because yes, our pelvis is key. Hip dip is something that is associated with running lower limb injuries. Uh, we see that in the clinic. We see that in the science. So we all need good, strong hips, pelvis, air, you know, pelvic muscles, glutes, ab, hip abductors, adductors. But if you look at the forces generated when we run, the primary force producer, the powerhouse of the running kinetic chain is the deep calf, the soleus. It generates up to eight times body weight at peak force, and it is working hard whether you're running at a 245-kilometer pace, a six-minute K pace, or a 440 pace. Uh, whereas other muscles like hamstrings, they work harder as the speed increases. Soleus is always, always on. So they're the big two two things if I could uh, draw awareness to, Dan. Fueling, the need to fuel, and the need to make sure we've got really robust soleus muscles in our legs. So the soleus, it, you said, generates a considerable amount of force propulsion. Um is that your stuff like your bent knee calf raises, um, that kind of stuff? Totally. So bent knee calf raises, in my opinion, they are best done in something like a seated calf raise machine. I know you use that in your training and S&C work, Dan, uh, or a Smith rack because you want to get balance out of the equation. You need to be able to produce really high forces with this muscle. So doing them against the wall with your knee slightly bent generally just doesn't give you enough robustness if you like in the soleus you need to go further one of the things that um this is reminding me of is you see if there are a couple of things you could get across that it would be those two but if an athlete went online instagram whatever there is now so much it's almost information overload mm. especially with athletes um, doing their core routines, essence routines, whatever. Mm. Every time you see, you think, "Oh shit, should I be doing? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that?" I mean, <laughs> it's hard not to go on and be somewhat overwhelmed that mm. maybe you're missing something. It, it, do you have any advice for how athletes can kind of cut through that noise of information overload and really narrow down on on what matters? Oh, mate, that's a huge huge topic isn't it and such an important consideration uh i think we all get overwhelmed don't we on social media i do as a as an experienced practitioner i jump on there and i often get off instagram feeling a little bit less than as in gosh i should have known that why isn't that in my exercise prescription library uh exactly like you just referred to so I often say to developing physios, it's never been easier to be professionally developed, but it's never been more challenging at the same time because of the noise, like you said. So I think and I think the psychology world uses the, the phrase compare and despair. That's <laughs> pretty good, isn't it? Um, it's something I think we all mature into as we go through our years, but if we can just stay in our own lane, do you have the right team around you if you feel like you haven't yet got the right team, whatever that looks like, then keep looking and ask people in your world that you respect and trust and build your own team and ask questions of them. Anyone in your team that you're asking questions of would typically be very happy to be challenged or will come up with answers or provide 
supporting reasons for why something's been recommended or given. So I'd just say stay in our own lane. It's talking to myself on that one too, Dan. <laughs> I, I see how it is a, a bit of a double-edged sword though from what you've just said because you now kind of have to be in this space. You Telehealth is, I can imagine, an enormous part of your business now during COVID and you have a podcast, you're on Instagram it's kind of unavoidable, isn't it? Uh, I, um, do you have any? Do you try and keep the messaging clear and concise, or because, um, like you said, it's, you can't go out and pretend to be something you're not. But how do you balance that? How do you balance what information you do put out there? As in, what I personally put out there, Dan? You mean? Yeah, yeah, and what you focus on? Gosh, good question. I think I just screen it through the the filter of how can this. I just see anything I put up apart from some personal stuff every now and then babies and riding bikes or running. Um, as has this got some use to someone out there in the endurance sporting world? So if it has, then I'll try and as I can with time constraints, put something up. Uh, I've certainly, <laughs> I, uh, I certainly don't have the make it, make it a priority to do beautiful graphics and everything else. I, I'm also a firm believer in life, Dan, that when the crowd runs one way, start running the other way with trends and everything else. And so I'm trying to definitely be very basic with my posts, for example. So they're not beautifully designed all the time, but hopefully they get a message across. And yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting space, Dan. It really is. Well, this, this somewhat relates. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, um, obviously, a lot of people reach out to you through Instagram and, and, and you've worked with a lot of um, big name athletes, but one of the, I don't, I don't think you've ever um, gone quite so far as um, Ethiopia um, to then see, see an athlete. Can you hmm. kind of talk us through how that came about and some of the stuff that you worked on, um, worked on with Zane over there? Yeah. That, I mean that, as you say, that's a, every runner, has a dream, don't they, of going to East Africa? Uh, I always did. And so when that opportunity arose, one, I asked you for some notes from recollection on, because you'd been there and experienced it. Uh, you gave me a bit of an insight, which was helpful. And two, it popped up with Athletics New Zealand in the lead up to what should have been the Tokyo 2020 Olympic marathon for Zane Robertson. Uh, and Zane had, was battling with a few injuries at the time. And Athletics New Zealand knew that I'd done a bit of work with Zane and that he was comfortable with me. So they uh, supported the trip over there. And uh, it was only a short trip, uh, but enough to get there and try and make a bit of a difference for Zane. So there was daily treatment being done. Uh, there was strength and conditioning work being overseen. And yeah, it was all in a fairly uh, condensed time frame and... Uh, different world as you know uh the altitude of ethiopia saluta is it is a culture shock like i've never experienced oh, my gosh on reflection nothing but fond memories at the time it was it was challenging so you talked about there's a bit of treatment each day but one thing i think a lot of us have figured out during COVID, at least and, and I know you've said before is that exercise is 
the best medicine for tendons. And that a lot of, it, it's not so much if we've got niggles going in and getting a massage and feeling better for five minutes, but actually exercise prescription were, obviously you gave Zane a lot of exercises to do. Do you think that telehealth now truly can work for, um, for, for a lot of runners, for a lot of athletes? Absolutely. You mentioned that it's something that we do post COVID or through these COVID times. Interestingly, it was quite a, it was a mainstay in my clinical week every week before COVID. Uh, and COVID has just increased an awareness of it and an acceptance of it. But there are times when manual therapies are absolutely required. Uh, I still use it in my toolbox. Any physiotherapist working with athletes will use it. It's what we're trained to do, uh, amongst other things. But there's nothing in the running-related injury space that typically does not need, one, an accurate diagnosis, and then two, progressive exercise prescription. So that's where telehealth lends lends itself so well, Dan, to the common running injuries being tendinopathies, Achilles tendons, proximal hamstring tendons, bone stress injuries, kneecap pain or patellofemoral pain, for example. So, yeah, there's there's not a running injury that can't be assisted by telehealth um, these days. Has there been – so during COVID – I hate saying that during COVID because (laughs) it's still happening. Um, Only if you're in Australia or New Zealand, right? Yeah, tell me about (laughs) it. Um, some, you could kind of take a couple of different paths to your training. You'd either get disheartened and do nothing. Um, a lot of people started working on their weaknesses because they all of a sudden had a big safety net for if they got injured or, or some niggles. And in general, anecdotally, I've seen people just train a lot more. Um, like I said, there's a, there was a bigger safety net. Have, have you seen, whether it be through Instagram or, or your treatment table, a change in injury presentation across this kind of period? Yes and no. The yes part would be in if, if an athlete has been, which is understandable with all the uncertainty and the you know, the change in landscape with events still being cancelled, et cetera, mainly in Australasia, uh, it's easy to just want to take time out and just lose your mojo. Uh, so there's there's always that risk with the deload, reload phase for an athlete that they may develop a, a reactive Achilles tendon, tendinopathy or some shin soreness on the return. So, yes, there's been plenty of examples of that, Dan, and instances of that the deload, reload injury because people have taken time out. Um, But the other thing it it has done, on the other hand, is people have been able to train consistently and build that good chronic workload base in many instances, uninterrupted by tapering and an event execution. And so that has, as you've seen, Dan, led to some world-class performances across sports because people haven't been on planes, traveling, flying, losing days of training, getting sick jet lagged and recovering so it's a mixed bag but it's a good it's a good question there's and i'll i know we don't have too much time left but i have one more question about um you talked about deloading reloading pain how can an athlete tell if there is any kind of 
easy way between that good pain and, and bad pain where something is, you know, you're a bit sore and tired because you're training hard and when you actually need to see someone. Because I've, I, I feel like it doesn't matter how long you're an athlete for, that is over and over again <laughs> um, a mistake people make. Yeah, absolutely. You there? Yeah, Dan. I think we had to say we should be able to edit that out, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah, easy, easy. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm just wondering if you, if there's any, um, uh, you know, simple ways or, or red flags to look for basically are there any red red flags that um you know a, a sore achilles versus one that hey you, you probably need to go see someone yeah it's a, it's a top question and something that i think every athlete develops and refines their craft with throughout their uh, running years and that is when to take action when to ignore it when to stop when to take a few days off you know whatever it may be but there's no easy one answer the reason being uh, when it comes to bone stress injuries, that they exist on a continuum. So if someone's got a developing bone stress injury, their best bet is to absolutely deload, stop, seek professional advice and get an understanding of the accurate diagnosis and then therefore the prognosis. So if someone keeps running with the onset of some bone stress, say in their tibia or their shin uh, or their femur, their thigh bone, for example, there was a case of a, an Australian triathlete who was looking to try and qualify for Tokyo 2021 who had some onset of early low-grade bone stress in his thigh, uh, was unable to access an MRI for two weeks, and in that two weeks continued to run fairly decent workloads and pushed it to a, a stress fracture. So in two weeks, that athlete went from, if he had have picked it up sooner, could have had a couple of weeks deloading and then appropriate reloading, but with a frank stress fracture, he was looking at multi-weeks, six to eight weeks of absolutely no running and building back, and it crueled his Olympic ambitions. So there's an example where you can't afford to run on if it's bone. Now, the problem is not everyone can determine if it's bone or not. How do you know? So I think one key rule, Dan, would be always think bone with runners and triathletes. Think bone first, rule bone out. If we're then left with soft tissue, you can act accordingly. And with the soft tissue types of injuries, Dan, be it tendons, muscle strains, um, or any, anything else, ligament injuries, we're trying to get people running as soon as they can. We're practical. So there might be a few days that people would be best just to take off, but otherwise you want them to, to be out there running, loading up, and not sitting on the couch, metaphorically speaking. Well, I think that's the biggest fear, isn't it? Is a lot of people... Um, yeah, you know, if you don't go to the doctor, then you're not sick. If you don't go to the physio, then you're not injured and you can keep running. I think a lot of people are, are, are kind of stuck in that loop where they think if they, they think it's going to be worst case and that they're going to have to stop running. And that's probably something a lot of us battle with. Yeah. It's, if it's a tendinopathy, Achilles tendinopathy, unless it's so flared up that you know that you just need to give it a, a couple of days or a week then you absolutely want to find the workload that you can tolerate. Now, what's an acceptable workload? Uh, this is from the likes of Ebony Rio and Jill Cook, Australian well-known tendon researchers. They talk about low and stable pain. So if you have an Achilles tendon issue 
and you go and run 45 minutes and you wake up the next morning, which is where you tend to feel it, when you tend to feel it the most, and you're stiff and it's really sore, you tried to hop on it, single leg, and it gave you a seven out of 10 pain, then that would indicate that the, the workload that you executed within that 24 hours, 45 minutes of running exceeded your tendons happy point or your tolerance point. Could have been that 30 minutes was okay. So if you look for that low and stable pain with tendons, 24 hours after exercise, test it with a hot test, that's where you want to stay. You want to stay zero, one, two, three out of 10, for example. Uh, so you can go through a whole month of running, three, 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 two, two, one, one. But what we don't want is a seven, a two, a three, three, two, seven, seven, seven on, on the mornings when you wake up. And speed work is the big enemy of tendons when you're trying to settle them down. So take the pace out, reduce the volume, experiment, and find out what allows you to wake up the next morning with just that low level pain and stiffness. So you want, to find, you want to find that operating window. Yes, perfectly said. Right. All right, mate. This has been an absolute pleasure. So many gems in there that I think a lot of listeners will be able to, um, will be able to take from. So... Thanks so much for your time. Oh, Dan, thank you. Keep up the great work. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Cheers.